Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, cardio nerds. We continue with our special cardio COVID series to explore the cardiovascular implications of COVID-19. Like Kareen told us on the last episode, every cardio nerd must pay keen attention for three primary reasons. One, COVID-19 is both more likely and more severe in those with baseline cardiovascular disease, as we will see in this episode. Number two, COVID-19 itself appears to cause new acute cardiovascular disease as described by the graphic on our website. And number three, cardio nerds everywhere will need to step up to meet the needs of this pandemic. Today, we will be discussing critical care management in patients with COVID-19 building on our last episode. We are excited to learn from our critical care colleagues, Dr. David Farfaro and Dr. Samuel Brusca. Dr. David Farfaro received his degree in chemistry with a minor in pharmacology from Duke University. After college, he volunteered in AmeriCorps for a year, working with patients with HIV. He received his MD from Harvard Medical School, and from there, he went on to complete his internal medicine training at the Osler Residency at the Johns Hopkins, where we met. And we were both Barker for life. Anyways, uh, he returned to Johns Hopkins as an assistant chief of service and left the Barker service, but went on to uh, run Janeway and uh, did a great job with that. He is currently a pulmonology and critical care medicine fellow at Columbia University Medical Center. He is interested in critical care, pulmonary hypertension, and lung transplantation. He is also a dedicated medical educator and a huge cardio nerds fan. And I have to add that if anybody would be treating my family, it would be Dr. David Forfaro. I always said it. I said it when he was an intern. I realized that I was correct when he was a JAR. And when he was a SAR, I knew I was still correct from all the way when he was an intern. He is just such a great person. He's such a dear friend. And I am so glad that we get to have him on the show today. Uh. Thanks so much, Dan, for that amazing uh, and very flattering introduction. Uh, and thanks, Samit, for having me on. I'm super excited to be here, and I love the podcast. Thanks so much, Dave. I'll add that Dave is probably one of the best well-read people I know. When we were co-chiefs together, he was essentially more up-to-date than my PubMed alerts. He would come over to me and say, hey, Amit, did you read that recent article? And, and sometimes I'd sort of feign yes, and sometimes I'd tell him the truth. Uh, but it was definitely helpful for keeping me up to date. I was just trying uh, to distract Amit while I stole sodas from his fridge and snacks from <laughs> his room. But I am equally honored to introduce Dr. Samuel Brusca. Sam received his medical degree from New York University School of Medicine and went on to complete internal medicine training in the Ulster Residency Program with all of us at Johns Hopkins. He is now Critical Care Fellow at the National Institutes of Health, from where he will move coast to coast to join Cardiology Fellowship at UCSF. He is looking forward to a career as a critical care cardiologist. And personally, I know Sam for his brilliance, calmness, and wry and witty humor. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Definitely. <laughs> oh, yeah. Signature brusque humor. And friends, in today's mind-numbing constant stream of doomsday news headlines, it is so important to celebrate the goodness in all of our lives. In that spirit, Sam, we want to congratulate you and your wife, Dr. Becky Bruska, on the recent birth of your first child, the beautiful and adorable Madeline. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Very happy to be here. And also uh, happy that Madeline is quietly, quietly sleeping right now. So uh, I'm, uh, 
I, I love what you guys are doing with the podcast. Amazing. We cardio nerds will be working hard to bring you the best of what we know at the current time. However, the never ending stream of information is unremitting and our knowledge base continues to evolve. The episode was recorded on March 17th, 2020. By tomorrow, we may very well know something new. So please, we urge everyone to stay up to date with reliable sources, including professional organizations such as the AMA, ACC, AHA, and ESC, etc., and authorities like the CDC and WHO and your government officials. My friends, the latter point cannot be stressed enough. Misinformation is so prevalent and damaging that it's earned the moniker of an infodemic. So please filter your sources and share information responsibly. For this and all episodes, friends, just remember this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to enjoy learning more about cardiology in the COVID era directly from expert cardio nerds. We continue to follow the case of Sarah S. Covids, whom we met on Cardio Nerd episode 19, when we just learned about the interplay between SARS-CoV-2 and ACE inhibitor 2 receptors. As you recall, Ms. Covids is a 29-year-old woman with a history of familial dilated cardiomyopathy and an ejection fraction of 25% status post primary prophylaxis single chamber ICD. As we learned in our last episode, she had five days of fever, chills, anorexia, and a dry cough and she was sent to the emergency department because Dr. Spikes astutely noticed in clinic that she had profound shortness of breath and lightheadedness. She now has a fever of 101.3 Fahrenheit, and her heart rate was 98 beats per minute, and blood pressure was 95 over 56, which is similar to her baseline, but her respiratory rate was elevated to 22 breaths per minute, with her O2 sats of only 91% on room air. Rapid flu and RSV were negative, but given her symptoms and recent family cruise trip that she had taken, she is taken to the quarantine tent and a COVID swab is sent. This presentation, Dan, is very concerning indeed, and so glad that Dr. Spikes activated her local COVID action plan, especially with given her symptoms of fever, fatigue, and flu-like symptoms are all red flags for COVID. While the majority of infected patients will have mild symptoms with no or mild pneumonia, according to a report of about 45,000 patients from the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention, about 81% will have this quote-unquote mild presentation. However, 14% develop severe illness and 5% developed critical disease with respiratory failure, shock, and or multi-organ dysfunction. Regrettably, they did observe a mortality rate of 2.3%, but this figure varies depending on which report we're looking at. The case fatality is known to rise with age and comorbidities, of which cardiovascular disease is an important one. But Dave, weren't you telling me that the reality might be even more dire, especially within this quote-unquote mild category? Yeah, I mean, we're learning more and more about the COVID presentation every day as we get more cases and more people are reporting on them. Within that mild category, there's a couple interesting things. In that study, they really classified anyone who did not need oxygen as having mild disease. And while that's a nice divider to split patients up if they are not hypoxemic, it leaves a lot of breath within that mild category. Now we're hearing about lots of patients who are swab positive with minimal to no symptoms and seemingly can still spread the disease before they're symptomatic, which is concerning. Other patients, even though they don't need oxygen, are having pretty significant systemic symptoms with lots of coughing, dyspnea, bad headaches, and in a small amount of cases, some diarrhea as well. 
And they can feel a little bit worse than patients are used to feeling just with the common cold. So we're seeing just a ton of variability in that category. Wow, Dave, these numbers are sobering and staggering. And I definitely understand the increased level of concern for our patient. We are just so lucky to have wonderful uh, critical care docs like you to help navigate this world that we are about to really get exposed to. So we're really excited to have you here today. Ditto. I couldn't be more thankful that we can turn to our critical care colleagues, especially relevant for me since I'll be leading the CCU in just a month from now. So Dave, help me prepare. Can you give me a basic refresher for indications of intubation and just the basic vent modes in all comers? Thanks, guys. Super glad to be here. Probably a little flattering in that talk. I'm sure you'd be just fine on your own. Um, But yeah, of course, again. So in general, I kind of think about four different buckets of people needing intubation. First is being hypoxemic, which we see in pneumonia, ARDS. You can also see in cardiogenic causes if you have cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Then there are the patients that are hypercapnic with high CO2. And this is most classically COPD, asthma, maybe people with obesity, hypoventilation syndrome, or altered mental status. Then there's a group who just needs the breathing tube more than say the ventilator itself. And they really need airway protection. Uh, They get put on a ventilator to support them during this time. That's patients who are really altered. Maybe they've had an overdose or if they have bleeding in their mouth or pharynx or they have trauma, they just need their airway protected. So we use the breathing tube and ventilator. And then finally, there's this sort of grab bag of clinical course. Patients are really sick. They have severe shock. They have a lot of things going on, worsening breathing, and they need to have a lot of procedures and diagnostics done. They'll often get intubated until they're improving. In COVID, what has been seen and is being more and more reported that people are generally getting rapidly progressive hypoxemic respiratory failure, that first bucket that we talked about. In terms of the vent modes that you guys were talking about, for basics, I really think there are just two major categories to know. There are lots of little nuanced vent modes, but most of the time it comes down to a couple different settings. So the first is just a control mode versus a support mode. Support modes are generally used when people are weaning off the vent or if they're just uh, really awake and want to be more comfortable. In those modes, the patient triggers the vent and we give them a little support on each breath that they trigger. The more common in patients who are in respiratory failure are these control modes. In control mode, you set the minimum amount of breaths that they're going to get in a minute. And if they want to take a breath over that minimum, they can, and they get the full support for each additional breath that they trigger as well. That's what was commonly seen as assist control. And then it's usually assist control volume control or assist control pressure control. With the difference between those is which of those you're setting, the pressure or the volume, and then which you're measuring. In volume control for each breath, you set the amount of volume you want them to get each time the vent goes off, either because of breath that we set or a breath that they take. And the vent will use as much pressure as it needs within some limits that we give it to get that volume. In pressure control, it's just the opposite. We say what pressure the vent should use, and then the patient gets the amount of volume that pressure leads to. Both options have equivalent outcomes and either is good for people in respiratory failure or any other setting. Here in the US, more institutions use volume control. And then for each of these modes, we also set the percent oxygen we're delivering, the FiO2, which can go up to 100%, and the PEEP, which is positive and expiratory pressure. 
And this is used to maintain a certain amount of well-recruited and inflated alveoli. Okay, that is great. To summarize, two major modes of ventilation pressure control versus volume control. Effectively, when you're in volume control, you kind of have to think of four knobs, a knob for the FiO2, a knob for PEEP, a knob for tidal volume, and a knob for your respiratory rate. Yeah, that's exactly right. You can also mess with some other settings like flow speed and the flow tracing, but those four will get you through the day. Perfect. I love it. And I always used to group them as FiO2 and PEEP have to do with oxygen delivery versus your respiratory rate. And tidal volume is dealing your rate of removal of CO2. That's exactly right. PEEP is giving you recruitable lung and surface area. The FiO2 is giving you how much oxygen you're putting into your alveoli that can go across and diffuse into the blood. And then the respiratory rate and tidal volume are giving you your minute ventilation, which includes your alveolar ventilation and your dead space ventilation. Your alveolar ventilation is what's helping you clear CO2. Perfect. Is there a quintessential patient that you would prefer volume control for and a quintessential patient that you would prefer pressure control for? Or is it kind of dealer's choice when it comes to vent management? The most important thing is what you are most comfortable with. I will say that in patients with acute respiratory failure, I usually start in volume control. And the biggest thing with that is I know what volume they're getting and I'm measuring the pressure off of it. When you do pressure control, you can set alarms, but patients may get small volume breaths. And unless you're paying very close attention, you may not get alerted to that. So I'll usually go with that. Sometimes when patients are waking up a little bit more, they find pressure control a little bit more comfortable because it has a variable flow rate. Whereas in volume control, we usually set the flow rate and it's in a fixed pattern. So sometimes if they're a little uncomfortable on volume and a little more awake, a pressure control can be nice. Super, super wonderful. And I really feel like that was a great refresher. Now, there's a complex interplay between ventilatory support and heart failure because, you know, the heart and the lungs are really one whole system. And we're really manipulating that when we start flipping how people are breathing and using positive pressure ventilation instead of the normal negative pressure ventilation. So I'm really excited that Sam, you're here because, you know, you're critical care trained, and now you're pursuing your fellowship in cardiology. And I think that this is an amazing opportunity for us to get to hear your approach to vent management in the context of patients with cardiac disease, such as severe heart failure or cardiogenic shock, or any type of cardiac illness that they're coming in with or developing while they're with us. So do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, yes. Amit, Dan, thanks so much for having me uh, on your podcast today. I'm very excited to talk about critical care cardiology. It's something I'm uh, very passionate about. As usual, business before pleasure, uh, I must disclose that as an employee of the NIH and the federal government, uh, that these opinions are my own and not representative of my employer. Now that that's out of the way, uh, <laughs> let's, let's get dirty. I'm glad Sam has brought his own disclaimer. It's amazing. So I think vent-induced heart-lung interaction changes and just in general, uh, heart-lung interactions are probably the most interesting part of medicine for me. And it's part of the reason I have decided to go into critical care cardiology. And I think the easiest way to think about how the vent interacts with the heart and lung and how that could affect hemodynamics is to first really grasp what happens during spontaneous breathing. So when you take a spontaneous breath, you lower your diaphragm the pleural pressure drops and becomes more negative, and that has profound effects on the function of the heart. First, we can think of the left ventricle. When you take a, a negative pressure spontaneous breath, you can almost imagine that that pleural space, which is negative, is acting almost like a vacuum, and it's making it more dif difficult for that left ventricle to contract. And what that is actually just... Oh, yeah. it's like holding that's a bag. Yeah, it's... What that's, that's, a, that's good yeah. imagery. I like that. It makes yeah. it more intuitive. What that's actually describing is something called a transmural pressure, which is 
you know, the main determinant of wall stress, uh, the pressure on the inside of the ventricle minus the pressure on the outside of the ventricle. Um, but really what we're talking about is afterload. And, and that negative pressure in the pleural space increases left ventricular afterload. So Sam, you mentioned the negative pleural pressure increases afterload on the left ventricle. Did I get that That's right? That's right. Can you explain the mechanism of how it actually increases the afterload on the left ventricle? Sure. One way to describe afterload is wall stress. And if you go back to the equation for wall stress, it's actually the change in pressure or the transmural pressure multiplied by the radius, and it's divided by the, the wall thickness. When you take a positive pressure within the left ventricle and you subtract a negative pressure, you end up increasing that transmural pressure. And that's why your wall tension is going to go up with a negative pressure breath. The aorta, hmm. uh, the proximal aorta, the intrathoracic aorta also experiences that increase in transmural pressure. But because the extrathoracic aorta is not exposed to those negative pressures, you actually get a reduced pressure gradient for flow and increased afterload. Oh, that is great. Is that the law of Laplace, if I remember that correctly? That is exactly correct, Ahmed. I'll, I'll be honest, the, the vacuum imagery made a lot more sense to me than, than before. So it Yeah, just, it's like holding the ventricle back from squeezing. It's great. Yeah. That's great. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> All I have to say is that you guys are true cardio nerds. <laughs> you really are. <laughs> you really are. <laughs> I, think, I think we should include that, actually. <laughs> so the right ventricle, you know, that same negative pleural pressure um, is experienced by the right ventricle. You have that same increase in transmural pressure in the right ventricle. But all of the vasculature that the right ventricle is pushing against, the pulmonary circulation is also within the thorax. So there is no change in pressure gradient there. Instead, the RV afterload increases with negative pressure breathing because you still have an increase in tidal volume and transpulmonary pressure, that pressure between the alveoli and the pleural space. And thus you get collapsing of alveolar vessels and increased pulmonary vascular resistance. So with the spontaneous breath, both LV and RV afterloads will increase. So basically, Sam, what you're telling me is that during negative pressure inspiration, the negative pressure in the pleura that's created by that diaphragm going down ends up causing increased afterload for both the RV and the LV at the same time for different mechanisms that you kind of discussed. What happens when you actually flip it? And now instead of doing negative pressure inspiration that we are typically doing when we walk around, but now you're actually shoving air into the lungs. Don't worry, Dave, shoving air into lungs <laughs> gently. Yes, <laughs> but very, you're not gen <laughs> very gently, I hope. <laughs> yeah, very gently. But now you're shoving air into the lungs using a ventilator, a life-saving ventilator that is. What does the act of changing breathing to positive pressure ventilation do to the circulatory system in that way? from the RV's perspective and the LV's perspective? Uh, I'm very glad you asked because that's when things um, really get fun. <laughs> Positive pressure ventilation and the use of PEEP, as um, Dave described, is generally beneficial for patients who have primary left ventricular dysfunction. So you can think of your patient who's you know, post-STEMI and LV cardiogenic shock from a, an LAD that went down. So in that patient, you give positive pressure and that will decrease the transmural pressure across that left ventricle. You can imagine now, instead of the vacuum, you have a hand that's squeezing and assisting the left ventricle during systole. Again, this really only works because the extrathoracic aorta does not see that positive pressure. And so you get that gradient for flow. The other thing that could be beneficial with positive pressure uh, when you think of the left ventricle is the fact that PEEP, 
will increase right atrial pressure and reduce venous return. That can optimize where that left ventricle is operating on the Stirling curve. The right ventricle, unlike with spontaneous breathing, is a little bit different than the left ventricle when it comes to positive pressure. So the right ventricle, again, because the right ventricle and the pulmonary circulation are both in the thorax, does not get any benefit of that positive pressure when it comes to the transmural pressure. Now, instead, uh, just because you're increasing transpulmonary pressure and you're increasing lung volume, you get collapse of those alveolar vessels and you again get increase in your pulmonary vascular resistance and increase in right ventricle afterload. Now, the venous return is reduced, and that could help the right ventricle, uh, just like it helps the left ventricle, especially if the right ventricle is dilated and bowing into the LV, affecting LV compliance and LV stroke volume. So some amount of PEEP can be helpful when thinking of positive pressure. So basically, positive pressure ventilation will help the LV with the afterload, as we talked about, by reducing the afterload, kind of like by kind of squeezing the LV and helping the LV pump better. The RV, on the other hand, does not get that benefit, and the afterload is still increased because, again, the afterload that the RV sees is primarily due to the lungs filling up with air volume, squishing the vasculature, creating higher PVR, that's pulmonary vascular resistance, and so, again, the RV will suffer. So what patient is like the most challenging patient to use positive pressure ventilation, like which patient with which cardiovascular substrate would you be like, wow, I really hope this patient does not need intubation? Yeah, I think the the classic patient that we're really worried about uh, is one with pulmonary arterial hypertension with severe right ventricular Mm -hmm. failure, although biventricular failure can also be very difficult to manage. And I think one thing that Dave hasn't talked about yet, but uh, perhaps he will when he's uh, talking about ARDS, is this idea of best PEEP. And it's kind of the holy grail of critical care and mechanical ventilation. It's saying, for this individual patient, how much PEEP is the right amount of PEEP? Most people talk about that in regards to oxygenation and compliance of the lung. But I would like to insert here the concept maybe of best PEEP hemodynamically. You're not sure when that patient walks in the door or is rolled into ICU what their best PEEP is, especially if they have RV failure. Do they need that high PEEP to reduce venous return to optimize their RV-LV interdependence? Or will increasing the PEEP make the PVR too high and, and cause hemodynamic collapse? So I think best PEEP also applies to hemodynamics. And you have to be very careful and make changes very slowly so that you can see where that patient's going to end up being best managed. Sam, I think that is a great point and super interesting. I, I think determining best PEEP should involve all of those considerations and whatever technique you're using to do that, whether it's an esophageal balloon or focusing on driving pressure or focusing on their hemodynamics or just their oxygenation. Critical care medicine, as you know, is bedside medicine and making changes and seeing responses and then making changes back if they're not working well or going further if they are making progress. So uh, being the bedside and watching the peep and how it affects all of those factors, I think is essential. No size fits all. Is that what I'm yeah, I think that's a good, uh, a good conclusion. Uh, the last thing I, I thought is an important concept to describe is just chest wall compliance. So low chest wall compliance leads to a lot of the pressure that's being instilled with the ventilator going to the pleural space instead of the alveolar space. So this time, picture your hand around a balloon, and if you hold your hands tight, the air entering the balloon, it exerts force on your hands and not really on the balloon itself. And so it's that pressure on your hands that's going to the the vascular space. So the effects on PVR are less because both the vessels and the lung are seeing that pressure. And the effects on venous return and the improvement in LV afterload are both amplified. And that's kind of one of the reasons why such uh, obese patients tolerate really high PEEP strategies hemodynamically when they're ventilated. Oh, wow. So it ends up being quite protective in this case. It's protective if 
you realize that the high PEEP strategies aren't going to necessarily cause barotrauma in a patient who has a, a non-compliant chest wall, and they actually will require higher PEEPs to oxygenate appropriately. All right. So this conversation is really helpful, and I'm sure I'm going to be using it very soon in the CC rotation, guys. Beep, 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 Guys, I think I'm getting paged about Miss COVIDs. Let's see here. Oh, no. She's, she's not visibly anxious, antikypnic. She's using accessory muscles. And her oxygen is down to 86% on two liters nasal cannula. Her heart rate is up to 120 beats per minute. And blood pressure is 130 over 80, which is way higher than her baseline. Friends, she's clearly in a heap of trouble. And her trajectory is raising all sorts of alarm bells. Dave, what do you think about non-invasive positive pressure ventilation versus intubation in general, and does her possible COVID infection affect your decision-making here? That's a great question, Amit. And it actually has a complicated and evolving answer right now. So the first and most important thing is to always treat the patient in front of you with what will best serve their needs. Using non-invasive positive pressure ventilation like CPAP or BiPAP or techniques like high-flow nasal cannula to deliver high amounts of oxygen to patients without intubating them are fantastically helpful and are very beneficial to patients who are uh, critically ill. High-flow nasal cannula can deliver high concentrations of oxygen. It can also decrease work of breathing, and it helps clear some CO2 by clearing out a dead space and filling it with oxygenated gas. Non-invasive positive pressure can have the advantages that Sam just talked about for patients who are in heart failure, and BiPAP is extremely helpful for patients with asthma or COPD to help decrease the work of their exhalation and create a gradient to allow them to ventilate more. So if a patient is in front of you and is not doing as well on nasal cannula, reaching for one of these tools can be great. However, one thing to be wary of with them is to not rely on them too heavily if the patient in front of you really needs to be intubated and is getting very sick. We've been hearing and seeing that patients with COVID get a rapidly progressive hypoxemic respiratory failure. And so while high flow or BiPAP could be used while their oxygenation is worsening and their work of breathing is worsening. If what they really need is to be intubated and things are getting worse very quickly, then they should go ahead and get intubated. Now, the other main thing to consider with patients with COVID, with these things and with intubation is about protecting the providers and people who are taking care of the patient. In general, COVID requires droplet precautions. It spreads via respiratory droplets that transmit from person to person when patients are coughing or sneezing, when they're in close contact, or when people come in contact with infectious secretions. This is based on our best evidence, and a lot of this is evolving every day. But this is different than pathogens that have airborne spread, when infectious particles are generally small and can be suspended in the air and infect people that way. With that being said, airborne precautions with N95 masks and negative pressure rooms were being recommended by the CDC initially for all patients. And now, as there's been more use of PPE equipment and we're having to save it for people as they're getting sick, less and less are we using N95s for all patients. However, with aerosolizing procedures, we have to, have to, have to use airborne precautions with N95 masks and negative pressure rooms. So, Procedures like intubation and bronchoscopy lead to aerosolization of these particles and have to be done very carefully. And a bunch of studies have shown that BiPAP in particular leads to lots of aerosolization. And they've done some cool studies where we see how this happens. This also happens with high-flow nasal cannula to some extent, and even nebulizer treatments on the floor appear to be aerosolizing the virus. Therefore, any patient being supported on these modes has to be an airborne isolation, and PPE uh, is essential for all the providers. And how much institutions are relying on non-invasive 
positive pressure and high flow nas- nasal cannula with this aerosolization data is really being determined on an institution by institution basis. The one thing that is clear is that when patients need to be intubated, nothing should get in the way with that. However, for intubations, there should be minimal people in the room, as minimal as possible to be safe. They should be in full airborne precautions with N95s, then plus face masks and shields and contact precautions. And the intubation should really be done by the most experienced intubators and minimizing the amounts of passes it'll take. So using things like video assistance for first pass success. Dave, that was an incredible visualization of what has to happen. And COVID is a viral infection and the patients are getting sicker and sicker. And we don't have right now anything that reverses the underlying disease course. So I understand like if a patient comes in with worsening respiratory status, increasing oxygenation needs, it would make sense that something like BiPAP or high flow may not provide what we need it to provide before we can turn the situation around since tender love and care and a lot of support and vigilance is what they really need to get through it if they're going to get through it. So I definitely see that you have to have your thinking hat on at all times and be ready to intubate. And then at the same time, because of the risk to providers and everybody in the, in the ICU unit, being prepared is so critical to make this work the best, in, especially in the busy environment in the ICU. I especially appreciate conversation about the need to protect the staff in the room during any procedure. And this is relevant for intubations, of course, because you're aerosolizing the respiratory flora, but also has been a very active conversation in all sorts of procedures and within cardiology, certainly how we should triage patients coming in with acute coronary syndromes and who need a cath as well as elective surgeries in the OR. And so I think this is an evolving conversation, but common sense, things like minimizing the staff in the room and using appropriate personal protective equipment is all going to be very important throughout. Yeah, and echoing on on uh, what Dave said, I think that's a great breakdown of the indications for intubation and how, how we have to be really cautious and prepared. And bringing that back to kind of cardiology and the potential risks of intubation in patients who have underlying cardiac disease and COVID, I think it's going to be really crucial that we are ready for the potential hemodynamic effects of the intubation process itself. In the CICU, it's kind of an evidence-free zone as to what is recommended, uh, what is standard of care when it comes to intubation. I preferentially use things that are hemodynamically neutral, especially when you have patients with RV failure or ongoing hypotension on pressors already. And having uh, the pressors running or quickly available is something that can, that can really be the difference between an arrest occurring or not a successful intubation. And I can only imagine that code situations uh, in patients with COVID will definitely lead to more spread of the virus. And so that's something that we definitely want to avoid. Oh, my God. I didn't even think about that. Right. Like, because we're dealing with our patients in the ICU, et cetera. But imagine you're just on the floor with a rule out and now you need to intubate and you don't have all the things that you have set up in the ICU, that could be a disaster. Yeah, it's been a, a big topic of conversation as we're getting more and more patients, you know, where should they be? Should they be on special units just for ruling out or special units if they're positive so you have all the equipment available? And, and I'll say there's meetings every day and lots of great conversation. People have been unbelievably dedicated to trying to figure out the best way to take care of people and make sure that patients can get the best care possible while all the providers are protected. So guys, back to our patient, because we are a patient-centered podcast. Sarah COVID's being treated by the right team who made the right decision, and she was intubated, but she's still very agitated, and her blood pressure is through the roof, and breathing is totally out of sync with the ventilator. Sam, what is your approach for sedation in these kinds of patients, and how do you modify it with patients with prior cardiac issues like our patient? So um, I think the theme of the episode of uh, one size does not fit all uh, definitely applies to sedation. And I think 
uh, it's important to know as the provider that there's no perfect sedation regimen for, for all comers. I think in general, in the CICU, again, this is somewhat of an evidence-free zone. There's uh, not great guidelines for uh, sedative use, specifically for cardiac patients. So I think most expert CICU providers are following general ICU sedation guidelines, which means to limit benzodiazepines, which are associated with delirium and longer ICU stays and mortality, in favor of shorter half-life uh, medications like fentanyl and dexmedetomidine, uh, also things like propofol. The one thing I would caution providers about in, this, in the CCU and elsewhere is that we have to weigh the risks and benefits of sedating a patient and potentially the negative consequences of those sedating agents like negative inotropy with things like propofol, negative chronotropy with things like dexmedetomidine with the negative effects of a patient being severely agitated. And that could be negative effects for the whole team, meaning risk to the staff if they have COVID and they could spread that by uh, self-extubating, but also hemodynamic risks. Um, we talked about how negative spontaneous breathing has uh, negative sequelae for LV and RV afterload. You can imagine a really agitated patient pulling that pressure wave on the vent all the way down to baseline. Mm. And so that negative pressure, that that really intense negative pleural pressure mm. is going to have drastic sequelae. Wow, that's great. You know, you have a patient that their RV is just struggling, 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 and but they have to get be intubated. You intubate them and like anything that any little bit of negative inotropy could just totally take that oomph out of that RV. And again, RV not pumping leaves LV without any preload, leaves LV, not contractility issues, but you know, stroke volume issues and cardiac overall cardiac output. So I could see a uh, total uh, cardiac collapse. In our institution, anesthesia comes and helps us with the intubations. Mm -hmm. And I'm just so appreciative with what they do and the thought process there. And the way you just explained to me really gives me insight into what's going through their minds at the time of intubation. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, I think a lot of times we talk about intubating the PAH patients and how awful that is because mechanical ventilation itself might be might be helpful. Uh, if you have a patient in respiratory distress, breathing 40 liters a minute with big tidal volumes because they're because they're feeling so dyspneic, the intubation might actually be better for their hemodynamics. But dropping their preload and an ischemic right ventricle during intubation is certainly always a bad thing. And, and that's really, if you can get them through the intubation, they can generally do all right. I'm really developing a better understanding of the complex interplay uh, that goes on with intubation and proper ventilation. Uh, meanwhile, Ms. Covid appears to be more comfortable. She's properly sedated, but we're clearly not out of the woods yet. She's hypoxic, setting in the low 80s, and the blood pressure is down to 80s over 50s. The chest x-ray shows proper tube placement, but there are bilateral infiltrates that are blossoming. So she's clearly tanking. We've got a complex interplay of both her lungs and her heart, hemodynamics. Dan, let's get the PA catheter in to figure out what's going on. Boom. PA catheter's in, guys. and shows the right atrial pressure of 8 millimeters of mercury, RV pressure of 45 over 8, a PA pressure of 45 over 20 with a mean of 27, and a wedge pressure of 18. SVR or systemic vascular resistance was low normal at 800 and a cardiac index that was low at 1.8. This is concerning for mixed cardiogenic and distributive shock. And given that we have pulmonary edema, we can probably say that the patient's pulmonary edema is cardiogenic and non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. So we'll have more episodes that go through how we talk about SWAN numbers and our interpretation of that. But simply put for now, this patient is going downhill fast. Her ABG showed a pH of 7.3. Her PaCO2 is 46 and her PaO2 is 55. She's on volume control. Her tidal volume is 550 cc. Respiratory rate is 28 breaths per minute and a peep of five centimeters of water and an FiO2 of 100%. 
Dave, you are the ARDS master and the ARDS whisperer. That's adult respiratory distress syndrome. Does she have ARDS? And what is our next move? Well, first, uh, I-, I wouldn't be a medical critical care doctor if I didn't say something of, oh, wow, we get a swan? This is great. Uh, <laughs> not super common for us anymore. Um, but a super, oh, it can be very helpful with these patients with mixed uh, shock. So I-, I definitely think she meets criteria for ARDS. Uh, the most common clinical criteria for ARDS that are used is based on the Berlin definition. And this says a few things. So first is in the name, ARDS is acute respiratory distress syndrome. So it has to be acute. It has to be within one week of a clinical insult. And the clinical insult for ARDS can be really anything. It can be infection and pneumonia is very common, but other infections like a urinary infection could do it. An injury or trauma could trigger ARDS or another inflammatory cause like pancreatitis. The second criteria is that there are bilateral infiltrates in the lungs on chest x-ray or CT scan, like she has. This reflects pulmonary edema, which can be cardiogenic or non-cardiogenic, just as you mentioned. Third is that the PDF ratio has to be less than 300 on a minimum of five of PEEP. The PDF ratio is this great measure that we use to see how well the lung is taking oxygen in and then oxygenating the blood. It's the ratio of the PaO2 in the arterial blood over the FiO2 from the ventilator in decimals. So if they're on 100% oxygen, that would be over one. If they're on 80% oxygen, that would be over 0.8. It's a measure of globally how well oxygen is delivered. ARDS is very heterogeneous in the lung. And so some alveoli may work well, while others are not working at all. And this PDF just gives us a big encompassing view of the entire lung's ability to oxygenate. And finally, the last criteria for ARDS is that the presentation should not be explained entirely by cardiogenic edema. And this is based on our clinical assessment. ARDS can look very similar to cardiogenic uh, shock and cardiogenic edema in some patients. And it used to be that there were stricter definitions saying that the wedge had to be less than 15. But since then, we've sort of seen that patients can have multiple things going on. And just like this patient, they could be in cardiogenic shock, but also have a viral inflammatory process in the lung leading to acute respiratory distress syndrome. So I think for her that the edema we're seeing on her imaging is both cardiogenic, non-cardiogenic. In COVID patients, what we're seeing in the data that's getting published is that there are lots of, of ground glass opacities and patchy infiltrates on the CAT scan. And while this can look similar to cardiogenic edema, there can be differences as well with cardiogenic edema often having bilateral pleural fusions, which are seen a little bit less so far in what's reported. Again, all of this subject to actively evolving reports that are coming out. And then cardiogenic edema often has cisvascular congestion and septal thickening as more prominent features. So I definitely think this patient meets having ARDS. And for that, the most important thing we have to do with their ventilator is lung protective ventilation. This has been the most consistent intervention that we can do to benefit patients with ARDS. And it means low tidal volume ventilation. This means reducing the tidal volume down to six cc's per kg of ideal body weight. And for her, very likely that 550 cc's that she's on is too much. We reduce this down to get low volumes to protect the lungs. And we try to keep patients plateau pressure, which is a measure of stiffness in the lung, less than 30. And we'll even tolerate some hypercapnia to get to this goal. You know, if we lower the tidal volume, the CO2 will go up, like we talked about earlier. But we can tolerate that to certain levels because we know it helps protect the lungs. With this and with treatment of everything else that's going on, if she's 
still profoundly hypoxemic with that P to F being less than 150, we have some other techniques we can try to use. We can use paralytics in ARDS, although there's some more debate going on about that now based on some recent literature. Proning has showed major benefit in ARDS and should definitely be considered and pursued in patients with severe hypoxemia. That's flipping patients over uh, and seeing if they can improve their oxygenation and lung compliance. And then finally, for patients that are profoundly hypoxemic, despite all of this, trying low tidal volume ventilation, trying paralysis and proname, if they have bad hypoxemia and extremely stiff lungs, they can be placed on VV ECMO. This is a machine that takes blood out of the venous system, removes the CO2, and it oxygenates the blood, and it returns it back to the venous system. And because the machine is doing all of this work, we can do some ultra-lung protective ventilation, where we ventilate people at very low volumes sometimes one or two cc's per kg, and we can still maintain their oxygenation and clear their CO2. And then one thing to remember is that, especially for this patient, given that the VV ECMO is all in the venous system, we're returning that blood right back into the venous system, essentially into the right atrium. So your heart has to be working well to be able to handle all that blood flow coming back to the right atrium. It has to still be able to pump it out effectively. All right. So this is very helpful to summarize. It sounds like Ms. Kovitz does have ARDS, and we need to start thinking about lung protective ventilation in order to address this problem, as well as potentially recruiting other maneuvers like uh, proning and VV ECMO. But looking at our hemodynamics, I am worried that the component of cardiogenic shock won't be addressed by these maneuvers alone, and she may need mechanical circulatory support in addition to help her get through this, depending on how she responds initially to ventilation by itself. What do you guys think? Yeah, I totally agree with you. She seems like VV ECMO would not be a great option for her at all, given the way her heart is working. Uh, and she seems to have some profound shock going on as well that would definitely have to be addressed. That's a, a great point, Dave. Uh, highlighting that VV ECMO relies on the patient's native cardiac function uh, is crucial. Uh, and in fact, patients with cardiogenic shock and cardiac dysfunction were excluded from the VV ECMO trials for ARDS uh, for that reason. The one thing to keep in mind is, and I don't think that that necessarily uh, this will uh, relate to our current patient because she has biventricular failure, including that familial cardiomyopathy. But patients who have pure RV failure or corpulmonale physiology from their ARDS very likely can uh, have recovery of their RV once they go on VV ECMO. The oxygenation improves, the, the acid base status of the patient improves, and we know that the pulmonary pressures uh, will be much more gentle on the right ventricle with lung rest uh, with those ultra low or protective tidal volumes. So Patients with pure RV failure often will have recovery of their RV function on VV ECMO. But this patient likely needs VA ECMO, which bypasses the pulmonary and heart circulation altogether and will give this patient the cardiac support she needs. Wow, that's actually really, really interesting. Yeah, no, I totally, um, it makes sense that I think she's probably going to need VA ECMO to support both her heart as well as her lungs. And this is probably going to be very relevant in the era of um, the influx of patients we get from COVID because we're seeing reports all over social media and as well as uh, reports from the ACC that there are patients developing myocarditis in the setting of COVID. So this will probably apply not only to patients with baseline cardiac disease, but also perhaps patients who don't have cardiac disease to begin with. So we'll have to be very careful in our management in these patients. And Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point, Amit. We don't generally think of VA ECMO when we're managing patients with, res with kind of concurrent or almost co-primary respiratory failure. Uh, and it's a, it makes things slightly more complicated on VA ECMO because VA ECMO runs in parallel. And so the native circulation does still have some blood flow. And as that changes, recovers, uh, the patient's 
hypoxia can actually worsen because you have more blood going through those sick lungs. All right, guys. Thankfully, Ms. COVID is actually doing well on low tidal volume ventilation, and her hemodynamics have improved once respiratory acidosis was corrected and her oxygen status was improved. Okay, Dave, Sam, I uh, just my heart goes out to what you're doing. Right now, I'm currently in social distancing, my family, taking care of a bunch of kids who are very, very much rambunctious at home, but you are walking towards the hospital. You are literally walking towards the virus, and you both are really in the trenches. And we're hearing a lot from healthcare providers in Seattle and healthcare providers in Italy and other places just talk about what they're going through. And I can't even imagine what's going on in your minds. Would you share some experiences that you have seen at your respective centers? And how are you all preparing for what seems to be trending increase in patients that are going to be seen at your institution? Yeah, I can't talk specifically about, you know, any particular patients at Columbia, of course. Certainly, there are increasing numbers of cases in New York and all the hospitals around here. And they are spanning the spectrum of very mild illness to the most severe illnesses getting all levels of intervention and support, including things that we've discussed. Uh, the entire hospital and the ICU team has all been great. Everybody's you know, preparing for this and we're just trying to be as ready as possible with uh, PPE supplies and everybody being well informed of what to do to manage these patients. Uh, there has been some use of the antiviral medication remdesivir. This was initially on compassionate care use. Now there's some clinical trials going on and we'll have to wait for those trials to come out to see the true benefit. And then chloroquine and anti-malarial drugs being used. And I know some IL-6 therapies are being investigated and used and new ones being developed as well. Uh, like Dave said, everyone's been mobilized and ready. And I think um, it's kind of just another example of uh, the kind of self-selecting population of people that go into healthcare. Uh, and that's not just uh, the critical care doctors, that's nurses and the entire ICU staff and non-ICU staff for that matter. The, the last thing I would mention, our department did have a, a conversation with one of the directors of an ICU at a, a Chinese hospital today. And he did describe seeing cardiogenic shock not infrequently in a number of patients. This was a mixed picture with some patients uh, developing core pulmonale, some having a more classic Takotsubo. I think we're really learning so much on a day-to-day -day basis here. And as we get more reports of the cardiac effects of this virus from our, our U.S. colleagues, uh, we'll hopefully have a much better idea of what, what to expect. Uh, you know, to piggyback on the way Dan asked his question, I'm also at home with my family uh, trying to stay away and protect myself because I think very soon we're going to need all hands on deck. But for Dave and Sam, for you guys going to the hospital, you know you're walking into the hotbed. How are you preparing yourself emotionally and, and mentally to go and take care of these patients? I uh, don't want to speak, like, overspeak my role in every, anything. Certainly everybody at the hospital has been great you know, supporting each other. But I, I do think about everybody going in, all the residents, fellows, you know, the attendings, the nurses, even the staff, everybody coming into rooms, to take x-rays to clean the rooms. I, I think everybody's playing their part and doing the same preparation that you're talking about. You know, I think this is sort of what we do and what we signed up to do. And I think what we're dedicated to doing, and I think we all come in wanting to help patients and we're really seeing that we're actively trying to help them. And, and that's what gets everybody through it, along with the collegiality and support of, of everybody there. And the teamwork has really just played a huge role. So I think, you know, everybody is just trying to work really well together, be supportive of each other. The collegiality between departments and between all staff uh, on every level has just been pretty astounding. You know, I have a a young daughter at home. And it certainly is scary to think that I could uh, take something uh, from the hospital and transmit it to her. And so, um, you know, the one thing that kind of makes me a little bit you know, more willing and um, feel a bit better about taking care of those patients in the future is that 
kids seem to be somewhat spared. Uh, and, and I'm kind of using that as a crutch as, as I move forward, I think. Well, I honestly can say that I've learned so much uh, in this episode, in this discussion. And I know that everything that uh, you guys are teaching us will help not only myself, but many other providers take care of the legion of patients that are going to need our help very soon. Yeah, Dave, Sam, honestly, we had so much fun with you in residency. And this was a delight to have you back on our show. That was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. This was great. Really appreciate it. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. Don't forget to check out the amazing illustration that Kareem prepared for y'all at www.cardionerds.com. And please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to CardioNerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. And now a flutter moment. Hey, cardio nerds, this is Emily, and I'm a pediatric nurse at Hackensack University Medical Center in New Jersey. What makes my heart flutter is waking up my eight-month-old daughter the day after a tough shift. Love the show. Oh my God, shoot, my son's phone is barking. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, Dave, these numbers are really sobering and staggering and definitely increase my level of concern. I got to find this phone. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) What?